Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Adventures of Tintin. The Adventures of Tintin were written by Hergé and were published from 1929 to 1976. And the film adaptation, directed by Steven Spielberg, came out in 2011. And this is a patron request. Our patron, AJ, requested that we do this episode on Tintin. And it's really exciting for us because this is a topic that we're totally unfamiliar with. Yeah, I genuinely feel like I did more research for this episode than I've done in a while. Yeah. Just because I there's such a history to this comic. I know. Uh, that we are totally... We, we were both totally unaware of. And generally in the U.S., Tintin isn't as well known of a property as it is it's overseas. It's definitely like still popular, but definitely not as much as it is in like France, Belgium, the U.K. No. And in fact, uh, this was one of the very rare uh, scenarios where a American produced film did better financially or box office wise overseas mm, than it did in the U.S. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But that like. Almost never happens. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it does kind of remind me, I know it's not the same at all, but of The Little Prince, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, The Little Prince does have popularity and appeal in America because it's often taught in French classes. But I know it's a more well-known classic in Europe. Yeah, yeah. And the production of this film is interesting. Um Essentially, Steven Spielberg has kind of been attached to this film for a long time, since the 80s. Wow. Uh, When Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, (laughs) uh, his assistant showed him a French uh, review of the film that compared it to Tintin. Oh, wow. And he was like, what the hell is Tintin? (laughs) And he got a hold of some of the uh, books and kind of read through them and really fell in love with it and wanted to make the film. Mm -hmm. And Hergé actually was all in support of Spielberg directing a Tintin adaptation. Wow. Hergé uh, passed away and then, uh, you know, Spielberg doing other projects. The thing kind of got delayed and delayed and delayed. Uh, the rights of it, which he had purchased, went back into like <laughs> the nether, the nether sphere. <laughs> uh, he eventually got them back and he wanted to do a live at a live action adaptation of it. Yeah. So he actually approached Weta, which is Peter Jackson's uh, special effects company that worked on the Lord of the Rings films wow. and did Gollum, mm-hmm. because Spielberg wanted a CGI Snowy the Dog mm, okay. for this live action film. Yeah. Now, apparently, Jackson was also a huge Tintin fan. Wow, okay. And there's even, like, they did a um, a test reel of, like, CGI snowy footage, <laughs> and Jackson dressed up like Captain Haddock. Oh, my gosh. I've seen pictures of it. I, I haven't seen... I see him as Captain I Haddock. I know. He's, you know? he's bearded, you know? Yeah. And um, I, I didn't get to watch the footage, but I saw just an image of it. But uh, Peter Jackson was actually the one who talked to Spielberg and convinced him that... We shouldn't do this live action. We should do this entirely CGI mm-hmm. motion capture animated, like the whole thing. Yeah. And he convinced Spielberg. And so they ended up working very closely together on this project. And in all honesty, even though it's only, you know, officially directed by Spielberg, it was really a co-directing gig, I would say, between Jackson and Spielberg. Yeah, I saw Peter Jackson listed on, like, the movie poster, basically. Yeah, yeah. He was heavily involved, specifically with, like, I think the technology side of, like, the motion capture stuff. Yeah. 
Um, so just like a really interesting history to how we got to this very unique uh, film in terms of like the animation and like how it's presented and everything. Definitely, because there have been live action um, adaptations in the past. There were some, I think, in the like 60s and 70s that came out. Yeah, and also more traditionally animated ones as well. Yeah. I think a series, like it was like a TV series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there have been other adaptations. Yeah. Uh, but this was the first really big kind of blockbuster. International type release. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's kind of how it came to be. Yeah, and I mean, as I said in the intro, like Hergé published these books for over a span of decades. So it went on and on and there's tons of collected volumes of Tintin that you can read. And we're actually only going to be talking about three of them. So we're talking specifically about uh, The Crab with the Golden Claws, The Secret of the Unicorn, the Secret of the Unicorn <laughs> and Red Rackham's Treasure. Yeah, these three stories were all kind of like woven together to form kind of the structure of this film. Yeah. Uh, most mostly uh, The Crab with Golden Claws and The Secret of the Unicorn. Yeah. Only a little bit of Red Rackham's Treasure. Yeah, and it is a perilous journey dear listeners, for us (laughs) to navigate this system because it basically kind of like starts with one story, ends in like another, has like the other two mixed in, like it really like goes in and out. And I do admire the movie for taking the plot lines of these three uh, comic books and kind of weaving it together into a more cohesive story because in the comic books, you know, they're they are their own adventures and their own stories. Yeah, because Crab with the Golden Claws, which out of those three came first, yeah. is the one that introduced Captain Haddock as a character. Yeah. And it's more of just kind of this like isolated adventure story. Yeah. Um, that throws these two characters together. And then um I keep wanting to say the last unicorn, <laughs> and I keep having to stop myself. <laughs> the secret of the unicorn and Red Rackham's treasure, which are kind of a, a like a two part, a two part adventure uh, really is more what the film is about. This backstory to Captain Haddock, this yeah. lost treasure, his like past lineage. Mm-hmm. So it kind of takes like some of the more adventurous plot elements of Crab at the Golden Claws and kind of inserts them into that larger story. Yeah, and to make it a little more like globe trotting as well. Yeah, which I think was a, a smart way to go about it overall. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we'll discuss how successful it was, but I think the approach makes sense. Yeah, but I will say, you know, the two of us did our best to kind of map this out and we will try to explain where this the movie kind of takes from one and then goes to another and also talk about the comic books as well but it is very complicated and we are pretty new to the material so we apologize if we make any errors no we're yeah and we're gonna try to follow more the structure of the film Mm -hmm. and kind of talk about how that correlates to the comics you know as it's appropriate yeah it's always interesting when we're outlining and we have to decide how to even discuss <laughs> yeah and for this one we're like where do we start i don't know because sometimes <laughs> it's very straightforward it's like yeah these two things are like you know beat for beat basically yeah the same story and then other times it's like we frank- <laughs> what do we have here? we frankenstein a movie from different parts of three separate stories <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so the movie actually starts out with some really cool opening credits Yeah. And we kind of get a hint of 
Tintin's legacy as a comic series because because we get this cool like animated detective sequence. Did this remind you of anything, Adina? Any other Spielberg films? Because it reminded me. Like The Incredibles? (laughs) No, although actually very similar. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of Catch Me If You Can. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which Mm -hmm. is another Spielberg kind of um, uh, noir-esque inspired film kind of with these like simplistic, you know, geometric illustrations at the start. Yeah. The Incredibles is not Spielberg. I don't know why I said that, but it does no, kind but of you're, you're right. It is very similar in terms of like the, the, the graphic comic style. Book style. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, it kind of is almost telling this like separate little adventure in the opening credits in a very stylized way that I think works. Yeah, I agree. Um, so when the story starts, we get a little brief, uh, nod to Hergé and the original uh, comics because Tintin is getting a little portrait done of him yeah. at a flea market. <laughs> and actually the guy doing the portrait is modeled after Hergé. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's made to look like him. That's cool. And of course the illustration is the classic Tintin look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the actual comic version of him, which is great. Yeah. And he's at the market and he ends up finding this really cool model ship. He's like, yes. This will soon be mine. <laughs> and he buys it much to the dismay of two other men who are very eager to buy it. But he's like, no, this is my cool model ship. It's it's mine now. I have it. And the other men are like, we'll pay you like name your price. And he's like, no, I'm really into model ships. And this I'm, is my thing now. <laughs> <laughs> I've decided I'm a model ship guy now. Also, I before we move on too far, I do want to mention that uh, the comics take place in Belgium. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were originally written in French. Um, but the movie definitely has more of like a UK tone and like has UK actors in them. Yeah. So I'm not I'm like, is this supposed to take place in Belgium or is this supposed to take place in the UK in the movie? Unclear. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Bell uh, voices Tintin. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have Nick Frost and Simon Pegg as mm-hmm. the Thompsons and you have... Uh, uh, Andy Circus doing Haddock yeah. as a Scottish. Daniel Craig. Uh, yeah, Daniel Craig is the villain. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a, a very uh, English heavy uh, cast. Yeah. But Tintin, you know, reads that this is a model ship of an actual ship and ends up researching the ship in the movie to find out more about it. In the comics, he kind of already knows about the legacy of this ship through his friend, Captain Haddock. It's really funny because when we read The Crab with the Golden Claws, it wasn't until the very end when he's listening to a radio program and they're like, local reporter Tintin. And I was like, oh, I guess he's a reporter. Yeah. I don't think like he's obviously invested in the mystery of that book. Yeah. But like I didn't know what his motivation was. And then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Why does he do this? Yeah. Why does he care? He's just like a hardy boy type character. He is. Yeah. You almost don't need to know. It almost doesn't matter. It's just an excuse for him. No. And we never see him going to like a job, you know? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But after uh, trying to research the ship and everything, he goes back to his apartment and discovers that it was um, ransacked. Yeah, and stolen. And stolen. The ship was stolen. Mm -hmm. And so this is only uh, increasing the mystery. His reporter instincts are kicking in that there's a story here. Yeah. And he ends up in the movie. He goes to uh, Marlin Spike Hall um, through his research on the ship, the unicorn. He is led to that place. In the book, he also ends up going to meet up with one of the guys who wanted to buy the ship, which is uh, Saccharin. And so yeah. in both versions, he kind of kind of ends up meeting with Saccharin 
thinks that Saccharin has stolen his ship because his has gone missing, but actually finds out that there are two model ships of the unicorn. It's interesting because Saccharin is also in the comics. Yeah. But he's kind of um, a false lead in terms of um, Tintin's sure that he stole his boat. Yeah. Because he has one that looks identical, only to discover because the mast of that one isn't broken, that, oh, there's more than one of these ships. Mm -hmm. And Saccharin ends up uh, having his stolen as well. Yeah. The film, though, takes Saccharin and makes him the main antagonist. Yeah. And it's weird because that whole kind of um, fake out at the beginning of, like, you have my ship, and then it's like, oh, no, it's not my ship. Yeah. Is totally undercut by the fact that like Saccharin is just like <laughs> super sinister, like, super suspicious. And like in the movie, he gets like hit over the head. Yeah, and then like brought into this, and then when he comes to, he's like, "Oh, I didn't steal your ship." And then he's like, "Okay, we're good here. Here then, like you didn't just like hit me over the head. Like it was normal, right?" Like Tintin doesn't seem to care. Yeah, in the movie. God, I've, I've like totally jumbled this in my brain already. <laughs> yeah, because like he's he's like he sneaks oh, into the right, house. Oh, that's right. That's right. And the, then the butler, the butler hits him, him over the head. Yeah. And then he, it, it seems like he's being kidnapped. But then Saccharin's like, oh, this is a different ship. And then Tintin's like, oh, my mistake. And then like leaves. Yeah, where? where <laughs> I forgot all about that, actually. <laughs> See, this is us trying to like keep this straight. I'm it like, is. Tintin gets kidnapped so many times. Is this actual time that he's kidnapped or is this like a fake out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God. Should we talk about Thompson and Thompson? Yes, we do have to talk about Thompson and Thompson. <laughs> uh, two very classic characters in the Tintin stories. Yes. Uh, two just total nitwit uh, Bum- detectives. Bumbling idiots. Yeah. They're constantly um, falling, hitting their heads, bumping into each other. In the comics, there is a lot of really funny... Um, visual gags with them yeah that kind of it's interesting even just across the three volumes that we read i think the visual gags like evolve in a really funny way in terms of like you know these characters are constantly going to be falling down steps they're going to be like they're always getting their hats like knocked down over their heads like over their eyes and can't see and like you know you see that a lot but then like i think it's by the last one there's a, there's a part where um, Captain Haddock throws this briefcase down the steps and you get one shot where it's about to hit the Thompsons on the head and then it just goes to something else. Yeah. Like it doesn't even show you the moment of impact. It's just like <laughs> implied that they get bonked on the head with it. Because you know that that's their fate. Exactly. Yeah. So I kind of liked seeing that evolution in just these comics alone. Yeah. And... Uh, Nick Frost and Simon Pegg play Thompson and Thompson. I mean, very inspired casting. Oh, yes. It's excellent. Um, I will say I'm not a huge fan of their animation design. <sighs> yeah. They feel very overly cartoony. Yeah. And I, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about the character designs in general in this film. Yeah. Because it's obviously, and I'm going to be talking about just the way this film is made multiple times, but like I'll, I'll, I'll chunk it up a little bit <laughs> and just talk about the character design here because we have this very odd, hyper-realistic look to this film. Yeah, especially Tintin. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Tintin himself, but 
That like fooled me sometimes. Mm, really? Yeah. There were some moments where I'm like, oh, this is a person. That's interesting because Tintin and Haddock, I felt like were maybe the best executed of the characters in terms of like um, they retained enough of their cartoonish looks where I never really felt like I was mistaking looking at them for real people. Yeah. But a lot of the other characters, specifically just kind of like random background characters. Yeah. There's an opera singer later in the film. And a lot of these characters, like if you kind of like lose, if you lost focus of where you're looking or sometimes just a scene would be panning across like a market Mm -hmm. or kind of like with a lot of characters. And it feels like you're just looking at a real scene. Yeah. And a lot of these background characters are very hyper realistic. Yeah. It's almost like if they didn't have a character to model off of, they just went with like a very realistic looking human, Mm -hmm. Um, which was weird a lot of times. Yeah. Then you have the Thompsons (laughs) who, um, have you ever seen online? Like people will make a thing that's like, Oh, this is what Homer Simpson would look like as a real person. (laughs) And it's this horrifying, like, skin grafted, like, realistic, uh, horror, just terrifying. Yes, a nightmare image. That's what the Thompsons are like in this to me. Yeah. They just look like terrifying potato people (laughs) with their kind of bulbous noses and, like, exaggerated features. They do not work well in this style at all. No. And I know sometimes this hyper realistic weird style can be compared to um, the Polar Express. Yeah. Which is another CGI film that feels very realistic in some points. I do think this movie does it better than the Polar Express. Yeah, it's it's really hard to gauge (laughs) because in some ways the better it looks the weirder it is. Yeah. It's almost like worse to a degree. <laughs> like I'd almost want it to be more cartoony. Yeah. Cause it's almost less in the uncanny Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, from a technology production standpoint, and I mean, this film is 10 years old at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's held up well. It, the, the special effects are phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, even just like talking about like the particle simulations of the water and yeah. um, just like the textures and lighting of things like it's all phenomenal and like incredibly impressive from that point of view. Yeah. But the question <laughs> of should they have <laughs> hangs heavy in the air. You're like, why would you do this? <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. I would really love to know. I don't know enough about film production, but I would love to know how having done the film in this way would have compared to a real life, like the budget of a real life production. Yeah. Yeah. Because on one hand, you have so much manpower in terms of like the animation and the rendering Mm -hmm. and like the texturing and all that stuff. Like every shot has that element to it, but you also don't have production in other countries and the travel time for yeah. actors and the onset crews but you still have the actors showing up because it's motion capture yeah you still have jamie bell and uh andy circus on a set together working so it's not just like phoning in a voice acting gig so i don't know i'm just very curious if this was like higher production or higher budget because of the way they did it or maybe possibly lower yeah i don't know who's to say <laughs> <laughs> Thompson and Thompson introduce a storyline in this part of the story where there's a pickpocket on the loose. Yeah. 
and he is stealing people's wallets. And it's very funny because the Thompsons keep losing their wallets. (laughs) And at this point, Tintin has realized that when the mast on his model ship was broken, a clue fell out and he's able to find it. And it's a scroll that has this clue in it. And he's kind of realizing that there may be another scroll in that other model ship yeah. that Saccharin has. And, but unfortunately, his clue is stolen because he puts it in his wallet <laughs> and the pickpocket that's on the loose steals his wallet. There's also another storyline that kind of doesn't come back up again in the Crab with the Golden Claws about fake money going around. Yeah. I don't really want to go into it that much because it's not that important to the story. But this is sort of like another Thompson and Thompson side plot that doesn't really feel as relevant as the pickpocket storyline feels to the secret of the unicorn. Yeah, it is odd. They kind of keep giving these little uh, side mysteries to Thompson and Thompson. Yeah. Uh, I do like a lot in the comic, this pit, pickpocket yes. plot line. <laughs> I think in the film, though, it kind of feels weirdly inserted. It does a little bit. And the scene where Thompson and Thompson go and confront the pickpocketer. Oh, my God. It's just. It's awful. It's too much. Yeah. It's just like really over the top. <laughs> and just the comedy of it just doesn't land for me no it's much funnier in the comics to have thompson and thompson constantly being like oh my god my wallet's stolen again (laughs) (laughs) well and even just the visual there's kind of this whole action scene where you know they've attached their wallets to elastic bands and that kind of like uh of course uh gets turned against them Mm -hmm. but in the comics like there's just this moment where the pickpocket takes the wallet and of Thompson's like, oh, my God, he's got it. And the elastic band is still connected. And the pickpocket just lets it go and it slaps him in the face. <laughs> like just that, like those two frames in the comic. Yeah. Are so much more satisfying than anything else, like in the film with this like elaborate chase scene. I agree. Oh, and um, some guy is shot. <laughs> and gets shot. In the comics, he doesn't die. In the movie, they're like, oh, yeah, he's dead. He's totally dead. I was really shocked by this because this is a uh, Nickelodeon yeah. co-production <laughs> film. So I was really shocked by the, a number of things that were included in this movie. But the one is a drive-by shooting that kills a man. <laughs> yeah. I was not expecting to see that in a movie that begins with the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, uh, the yeah. Nickelodeon <laughs> production. <laughs> And then Tintin gets kidnapped. Yeah. Yep. And it goes a little bit differently depending on the source material. Because for the most part in the movie, we've been talking about the Secret of the Unicorns plotline. But this is kind of where... Wait, am I mixing it up? Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Okay, okay. Yeah. The Secret of the Unicorn, the the ships and the scrolls and the pickpocket. Yes. All that has been... uh, kind of pulled from The Secret of the Unicorn. Mm -hmm. But when Tintin gets um, kidnapped in the film, this is what leads into the crab with the golden claws. Onto the ship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But let's just kind of talk about what happens to Tintin in The Secret of the Unicorn in the books. Because he gets kidnapped similarly Mm -hmm. uh, during kind of this whole mystery with the scrolls. Yeah. And he gets taken to Marlin's... Is it Marlin's Pike or Marlin Spike? I don't know. Let's just say Marlin Spike. That <laughs> okay. sounds better. Uh, 
Marlin Spike Hall, mm. uh, which is our introduction in the comics to uh, this location. Yeah, and we discover that the Bird Brothers, who are like antique dealers, but maybe like shady antique dealers, mm, the are criminal kind, kind, behind all of these model ship stealings and drive-by shootings, and they kind of reveal to us there's this whole scene where Tintin's kidnapped, and then he escapes, and then they chase him, and then um, eventually the Bird Brothers are caught. And they talk and reveal that they found this model ship in the attic of this house and realized there was a clue inside it. Yeah. And then somehow pieced together that there were other model ships that had other clues and they were trying to find the treasure that's hinted at in these clues. So they went to nefarious means to do so and actually saccharin who is sort of the red herring in the comics, yeah. is like chloroformed and his model ship is stolen <laughs> yeah. and he turns out to be just an innocent guy collecting ships. <laughs> Poor man. Yeah. It does get a little convoluted. It does. Because it's like, who has the ship? But then it's like, well, the ship doesn't matter. It's the scroll. Who has the scroll? Who has the scrolls? It turns out the pickpocket had all the scrolls. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, but this kind of is... Uh, in the comics, kind of this whole little adventure of Tintin getting uh, kidnapped, being taken to Marlin Spike Hall and his like escape him kind of like running around and being chased by the bird brothers and a dog and a dog and the butler. I do really like, though, um, Tintin's ability to problem solve. Yeah, he uses he creates a battering ram. Yeah. And just breaks through a wall and even the way he does it is kind of practical like he sees a uh like a steel uh loop in the ceiling yeah. and he needs to feed like a big rope through it but so first he ties like a smaller string with something at the end and feeds that through because he can get that through the hole easier and yeah. then pulls the heavier rope uh, i see through that mm -hmm. with the smaller string and then ties it yeah like it's very realistic to probably how you would have to do it in real life. Yeah. And he, it's kind of that way with a lot of other moments, too. Like, he kind of approaches things from a clever but, like, fairly practical way. Yeah. Uh, and it was it made it entertaining to read. Like, even at one point, uh, when a dog is chasing him, he has the villains at gunpoint. And he's like, hold on to that dog or I'll shoot you. <laughs> yeah. Because the dog's loose. And yeah. so they're like, okay. And, you know, he kind of like solves that problem just by being like, if you let go of that dog, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> like, remember that. I will shoot you if you let go. <laughs> but just his way of like handling situations and like problem solving, I, I found very uh, interesting. Yeah. And so the Bird Brothers are caught and like this storyline kind of wraps up here and he gets the three because it turns out there are three model ships and three scrolls, and the three scrolls are recovered because the pickpocket is captured. Thompson and Thompson get their several wallets back. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, because the pickpocket has... See, once again, this part was so great. He has all of the wallets alphabetized. Yeah. So he has, like, uh, library shelves with the different <laughs> sections. And Thompson and Thompson are like, oh, my God, our wallets... And you realize they're like the entire T section. <laughs> they have like all their wallets are like it's the entire shelf were theirs, yeah. which was so great. Switching back to the film now, Tintin is kidnapped 
But instead of going to Marlin Spike Hall and this storyline happening there, he's kidnapped onto a ship. And this is where the plot line of the crab with the golden claws comes in and Tintin ends up meeting Captain Haddock. Once again, he has to do some very clever kind of uh, escape stunts to kind of like get out. Nothing like too ridiculous, but more clever and kind of fun to read. And, and the film kept a lot of that, too. Yeah. And in the comics, Tintin discovers while he's being kidnapped or while he's on the ship that these crab tins contain not crab meat, but opium. <laughs> opium, Ian. <laughs> I, I, was, I was so <laughs> stunned when that reveal came about because like, you know, I think there's some sh- there was some shooting and some guns at this point in the comic. But I'm like, OK, this is still pretty kind of just like child PG. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, my God, it's opium. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. I mean, to be fair, at this time, opium was not the drug that it is today. No. Yeah. It's like. We, we actually read about this because we were like, how strong is opium compared to like heroin, which it's like distilled into? Yeah, heroin's about two times stronger than opium. Don't quote me on that. I'm not a scientist. But. No, but I mean, even <laughs> half half the strength of heroin is still pretty Pretty pungent. fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny because like Tintin gets locked in this room and he's like, oh, it's okay, Snowy, we'll be fine because we have all this crab meat to eat and all this champagne to drink. And then he opens the crab meat and he's like, opium. <laughs> He's about to get fucked up on opium and champagne. Oh, my God. (laughs) The movie does not have this storyline at all. No, the whole ship thing just all ties into the unicorn and uh, saccharin. And trying to find these model ships. Yeah. Um, But during uh, Tintin's escape, he runs into Captain Haddock, who is like the captain of the ship, but also is like totally being... Uh, taken advantage of and really has no idea like what's going on. He doesn't know about the opium slash the true motives of whoever's really piloting the ship, which is Saccharin in the movie. And we have to talk about Captain Haddock because according to the Tintin comics, Captain Haddock is Tintin's best friend. (laughs) I'm glad you read that too. I'm like, what? What? Like, it's this like young boy. He's probably like 20, right? Yeah, early 20s. And then this like, 45, 50 year old alcoholic, gross alcoholic sea man. captain. <laughs> I know. I'm like, this is a, an, a weird relationship. Like, at least just saying that they're like best friends is weird. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, but Captain Haddock requires, I think, a whole conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and luckily, this kind of ties well into the events leading forward in the story with their escape. Yeah, because when Tintin meets Captain Haddock, like he finds him in a drunken stupor. Mm-hmm. And we find out that basically the first mate or saccharin, depending on the version, has been basically keeping Captain Haddock drunk. So he is unaware of what's actually going on on the ship. Yeah. And Captain Haddock is either unwilling or doesn't really care to not be drunk. Like he's very, he's like leaning into it, you know? Yeah. Um, there's like a joke in the movie about him being locked in his cabin and the door is open. (laughs) The door is unlocked. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's also a long sequence in the film where I kind of forget what the 
reason was supposed to be, but Tintin has to like steal keys oh, yeah. to get into this room, according to Haddock. And it's this whole kind of drawn out sequence of getting the keys only to reveal that the room Haddock wanted into was like where they just kept all the booze. Yeah. And I wanted to, I, I don't know why, like I wanted, I thought the setup was should have been funnier than it was, but for some reason the joke just didn't land. Yeah, you know, I thought it was weird in the comics to have this very child-centered story for kids have, like, a raging alcoholic in it. Yeah. And then I was like, I wonder what the movie's gonna do, because that definitely has not (laughs) aged well. I know, And then the movie was like, guess what? He's still a raging alcoholic, and it's funny. And I'm like... Is it, though? Yeah, it just doesn't. And and this is one of those things where, like, I'm not even trying to take, like, a moral stance against this. Like, you can't do that. It just isn't funny to me. No. Like, it just, I'm not, like, making a reason why I don't like it. I just, it just doesn't work for me. Well, like, you know, the Thompson and Thompsons are stupid detectives that are constantly getting themselves bashed on the head. Like, that's still funny now. It, It still works. You know? But having this character whose funniness comes from all the stupid things he does when he's drunk. Yeah. Now, I will say that the worst of this by far, I think, is in Crab at the Golden Claws. Definitely. And that's, that's when we first meet him. Yeah. And basically, when they escape onto a lifeboat, uh, Haddock sets fire to it. Yes. He, he lights a fire because he's cold on the lifeboat. Yeah. Uh, and then later on a plane, he gets drunk and then like purposely crashes the plane, basically. Yeah, he hits Tintin over the head with a bottle because Tintin is flying the plane because he's like, give me a turn flying the plane. And Tintin's like, no, you don't know how to fly a plane and you're also drunk. And then he hits Tintin over the head with a bottle. Yeah. They crash the plane. And then when they're in the desert... He hallucinates that Tintin is a bottle of champagne and tries to, like, squeeze the cork out of him, which means he's trying to, like, strangle him. I was like, how many times is this man going to try to murder Tintin before Tintin is like, okay, fuck you. Like, I know. (laughs) And this man ends up becoming Tintin's best Best friend. Best friend? Apparently. I know. Um, Yeah, I will say, though, in later comics, like, there is still that element, but it's much pulled back. He feels more in line with, like, a Jack Sparrow-type character. Yeah. Who clearly, like, likes his rum or alcohol. Um, but it's more like, I don't know. He, Silly. He breaks a bottle of, um boot, like, whiskey over someone's head. He's like, oh, my God, that was a three-star whiskey. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, There's a part in the Red Rackham's Treasure where he's, like, diving into the water and he drinks a bunch of alcohol and then dives in without his helmet on yeah because he's so drunk he doesn't realize that he hasn't put his helmet back on so yeah. like that that's like the harmless stuff that ends up happening later but yeah in this uh crab with the golden claws i was just like why is he trying to murder tintin <laughs> <laughs> I know. and you know the film also kind of is almost worse in a way because and the specifically the scene that stands out to me the most is when they're flying a ship, when they're flying the plane. Yeah. And Haddock sees a bottle of like medicinal alcohol. Yeah. Like for disinfectant. And he wants and he's like nervous on the plane and he wants to drink it. And Tintin is like, don't like that's for like medical purposes and like yeah. don't get fucked up. And then Haddock like. 10 seconds later is like eyeing it and seems like really nervous and just like ends up taking it. And 
it turns into this like goofy fun quote unquote scene where like the alcohol because like the plane is dropping and the alcohol is in kind of this bubble apparently this is an allusion to another Tintin comic where they go to Mars okay um this like alcohol floating in like a bubble kind of and he's like trying to drink it and also the dog is drinking it oh my god Snowy is an alcoholic in this series (laughs) kind of (laughs) yeah but like his desperation to drink it feels like really sad yeah like it doesn't feel fun it feels like his need to drink that is like not fun it's depressing yeah and then he ends up like burping it out into the plane's fuel engine to like give them some fuel reserves yeah i was like are you just like vomiting this back into the plane i actually (laughs) thought he was going to vomit into the (laughs) engine and i was like oh my god they're not gonna do that are they (laughs) luckily he just like belched which was better but yeah overall i was unhappy with this sequence i think yeah it just kind of um it's a weird vibe it kind of ends on this like really elaborate and certainly not the most elaborate action scene where like tintin ends up on the hood of the plane and he's gonna like go headfirst into the propeller and haddock has to like rescue him yeah it's a lot it's a lot (laughs) i will say though that um haddock's alcoholism in the film is at least addressed later as being like kind of a problem yeah so it's not all like oh this is just fun but it is at the beginning yeah they at least later are like hey there's more of an arc within in the film yeah so that like redeems it like a little bit i would say yeah Yeah, so they have this whole, like, escape thing where they get on the plane, the plane crashes in the desert, they're in the desert, they eventually get rescued from the desert, and they're in Morocco at this point, and we get this scene in the movie where Captain Haddock kind of remembers the story that was told to him about his ancestor, because the unicorn ship um, was actually a ship that his ancestor, Sir Francis Haddock, was a captain of. Yeah, and he was told this story a long time ago, but, like, doesn't remember anything about it. Yeah. Uh, In the comics, uh, Haddock just, like, reads about this and kind of tells Tintin this whole story, you know, regarding his ancestor. He, like, finds a a journal from his ancestor and reads it and ends up reenacting it as well and destroying his apartment. But (laughs) it's a similar scene of him kind of remembering it and telling it to Tintin when they're in the Morocco area. Yeah, and it is kind of cool the way he envisions, like, the ship on the sand. Mm -hmm. Uh, It kind of turns into this whole really elaborate um, pirate ship fight battle scene. Yeah. Um, that is like cool, but kind of what is the purpose of like seeing all of this? Mm-hmm. I uh, thought the scene in the movie was really cool and I liked it in the comic as well. Yeah. Just kind of showing, kind of flashing back and having this character that looks exactly like Captain Haddock, but <laughs> yeah. is in period costume and facing off with Red Rackham, the pirate. And I thought in particular the movie scene where um, Captain Haddock has rigged the ship to blow up with gunpowder. Yes. This is my favorite action scene, I think, maybe in the whole film. Yeah. Is, you know, he's made this trail of gunpowder that he lights to blow the ship up and he gets in this sword fight. And the pirate keeps snuffing out the trail yeah and then haddock has to keep 
relighting it. Relighting it. Yeah, I love that this is just these two characters in a, in a small set. Like, you know exactly where you are and what the stakes are and what's happening. It was very exciting. And in both versions, um, we end up finding out that the ship gets blown up and Red Rackham in the movie curses Captain Haddock and his descendants. Yeah, this is an element the film adds to this story that uh, Haddock's like family line is cursed, which is like why he drinks, <laughs> but also because he can never measure up to his ancestors. Yeah. One of those two things. It's complicated. There's also this really fucked up because there's kind of this like interruption in that story. Yeah. Where Haddock is remembering the desert and then can't remember anymore. Then they get rescued. They get taken to this place. Yeah. And for the first time, like in years, probably Haddock is like totally sober. Yeah. And but now he can't remember the rest of the story. So Snowy uh, drugs him. Yeah. Snowy (laughs) slips him more alcohol. Yeah. And I'm like, this isn't funny. No. And Haddock kind of like erupts back into this like drunken state. And like, I don't know. It's weird because like. It was implied earlier that he was beginning to remember because he was sober. Yeah. Which I kind of like. Yeah. But then for some reason he can't remember the rest until he's drunk again. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I just wish they had. It's like they wanted that sobriety being what triggered it. But then they also wanted him drunkenly reenacting the scene. Yeah. It's like they wanted both but compromised the whole. The whole thing. Purpose of it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. At this point in the books, in the comics, because remember, they're investigating the opium and not (laughs) this whole uh, finding the other model ship thing. Tintin, Haddock, and then Thompson and Thompson are all in Morocco investigating this opium thing. There's like kind of this chase action scene in the comics where Tintin finds like the secret hideout of... These Mm -hmm. opium dealers and it leads them to the man who's responsible and Thompson and Thompson are there, too. They end up arresting him. It's like this whole thing. Yeah, it's uh, it's a romp. Yeah, it's just kind of disguises and like underground passages Mm -hmm. and kind of what I would guess is kind of typical Tintin adventure. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people getting hit over the head and then them hitting other people over the head and then Tintin getting the upper hand only to have it taken away. And then he gets the upper hand again. At one point, him and Haddock are in a room with, is it barrels of rum or Or something? Something. And they get drunk off the fumes. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) A a lot happens. It's too much to recap specifically, but they do catch um, the The opium dealers. The opium dealers. Yeah. Yeah. In the movie, though, Saccharin and the ship are in Morocco to get the third model ship uh, because it has the third parchment clue in it. And the person who owns it is a sheik in Morocco who has it in this like impenetrable glass case. And Saccharin is like, oh, I know what I'll do to get the glass case open. I'm going to bring a woman with the most shrill voice that could break any glass. It was weird, too, because, like, she starts singing. And by the way, this is a character from the comics, I believe, uh, from later comics. Um, She begins singing and she's like an opera singer. But for some reason, the dog is freaking out and Haddock can't stand the sound of it. And like, like, I know. I'm like, are we supposed to laugh at her? Are you supposed to think she's a bad singer or is it just like so high pitched that they can't take it? I don't like the joke of it was kind of like lost on me. I agree. 
Um, but essentially, the the case bursts open due to her vibrato, <laughs> and all hell breaks loose. Saccharin and uh, Tintin both kind of go after the scroll, and it begins this uh, chase scene. Mm-hmm. And I, I this is kind of the showcase action scene, I would describe it oh, from yeah. the film. Yeah, it goes on for a long time. Yeah, and it's very impressive. And I'm going to find uh, the video. There's a really good YouTube channel called VFX Artists React, mm-hmm. um, where they kind of break down special effects in films. And they actually talk about this scene. And it's interesting because the whole scene is set up t- to look and act like one long, unbroken take. Yeah. Um, Where, you know, you don't have a quote unquote cut. And they say... They, they were like, you know, this may not seem like a big deal because it's animated. And you're like, well, you're not held back by the typical, uh, you know, filmmaking process that would usually require you to cut or, you know, that makes it more difficult. But they said, actually, it creates a whole host of other problems. Really? Because you're comp- like it, it's computer power. Like usually when you're, you know, have a scene in a film that's in a room and it's animated you know, you only need that room yeah. that the computer is like rendering, basically. Mm-hmm. But this scene is a chase through an entire city with multiple moving characters and like water simulations and like uh, a bird, a bird <laughs> and a motorcycle chase. And like they're like, so the computer can't render all of that frame by frame. You know what I mean? At the same time yeah. as it goes through. So there's either like. They actually did have to include like cuts or um, changes where like, okay, the computer didn't need to render that part anymore. Yeah. Uh, But it was just interesting like to read to to hear about how there were a whole other set of problems that they had to work around for that kind of scene. I can imagine, honestly, just trying to do that in live action or in CGI or animation, like seems incredibly complex to me. And as soon as you mentioned when we were watching it, like this has been one long take. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, it has. Yeah. And it really is so cool to see. Yeah. It's very impressive on one hand. And like when you're watching it, you're kind of like, oh my God, so much is going on. Wow. And, but there is also kind of a, a trade-off almost and kind of I, I wanted to talk here about how the animation style of this film how effective it is or not effective mm-hmm. because it's so weird on one hand everything is like almost to the point of being photorealistic yeah you know what I mean like it looks and feels and kind of acts in a lot of ways and it's motion capture so characters tend to move in a very realistic way. Their movements aren't usually that exaggerated or yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it feels very grounded in a lot of ways. But you can also do things like this long action uncut chase scene. Mm-hmm. But there's kind of a weird disconnect because like suddenly these characters that have felt very grounded are kind of doing these ridiculous leaps and like stunts yeah and it's like in a normal film like a marvel film where it's like okay you have your typical normally shot scene at a table with just two characters talking and then the cgi spectacular yeah it has that same kind of feeling where suddenly it feels like you're watching something else Mm -hmm. and 
similarly in other action scenes, like in the Thompson and Thompson scene, characters are kind of being flung around and it kind of has a weird rubbery quality to it all of a sudden when it felt very grounded throughout. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, it feels like, oh, with this style, you're getting the best of both worlds. You're getting this very realistic textured look of a kind of normal movie but you get to do these like ridiculous action scenes. But I kind of also feel like not successful in that, like, you know, in a typical Indiana Jones type movie, it's exciting because they're real people. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was just going to say this feels very Indiana Jones. It does. And I get why Steven Spielberg is wanted for this film. Yeah. But I think in this type of scene in an Indiana Jones movie or in a similar adventure style film with this like big action set piece, like it feels impressive. It feels very set in a place. Yeah. This definitely just felt kind of confusing. Yeah, you can't keep track of anything. Yeah. And it was like a back and forth with like, oh, the hawk grabs the parchments and Mm -hmm. then Snowy grabs it and then Tintin grabs it and the hawk grabs it again. And it was just kind of back and forth. And I think the comedy and the fun of seeing like a real life set piece and seeing like the thing that comes to mind is seeing like a big boulder getting like loose and like f- chasing yeah. them down is that kind of joy of watching something that's real action wasn't really there. No, you don't get that. And then you also don't get, you know, the full capability of animation. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't get the really dynamic character movements of, you know, certain scenes and like the visual style and flair that you get with like, because you're they're so restrained for to it to be photorealistic in a way that you don't get that real flexibility that animation can offer. Yeah. So it's kind of like they went for something that felt like the best of both worlds, but actually was like you kind of the weaker of both. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it was cool to look at, but I agree there was something lacking in it. Yeah. W- once again, it's just like the talent of the people that put this together i know is so phenomenal and that's why i almost feel bad like criticizing it i know saying that it doesn't work i just don't think it really does Mm -hmm. and like you were saying about the scene between sir francis haddock and the pirate Mm -hmm. like that felt more interesting to watch yeah and it was kind of cool and i i would have liked it i think just as well if it was live action like i don't think there was anything really sacrificed in doing it animated no because i mean it was a pretty simple grounded action scene with like a element that you could follow easily yeah um and it's interesting because it also makes me feel like i can't help but think of the hobbit films yeah which peter jackson went on to direct Mm -hmm. and their reliance on like very CGI heavy Mm. action scenes and kind of like, you know, the capabilities of the technology that opened the doors for filmmakers like Peter Jackson and and Spielberg in this case. And it's like, I feel like they're more, they're more interested in what they can do. Yeah. As opposed to maybe like what they should do or what's best for the story. Well, and you bring up a good point about The Hobbit. I wonder if this was like the sign that we all should have seen ahead of time (laughs) before The Hobbit films came out because Peter Jackson was involved in this movie and to see how he went with this was sort of a hint at what was to come with The Hobbit, which I did not 
really enjoy those films. No, like the the stuff in Tintin, like this unbroken scene makes me think of the barrel scene in the first Hobbit film. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think also contained a really long, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, like unbroken cut. Yeah. Um, Yes, there's a lot of parallels there, which are are very interesting. We should have seen the signs, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) We should have. The the writing was on the wall. (laughs) In case you don't know, we're not huge fans of the the Hobbit films. No, although we saw all three of them. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the best part of this film, Ian, which is, uh, the crane fight. Oh my God. The crane fight. I say that ironically. It's not the best part of the film. <laughs> it's just... honestly, it felt super jarring. Yeah. Cause we're in Morocco. It's this very like action chase scene in this like really cool looking set. And then suddenly we're like back in England or Europe or wherever, like on a dock and Captain Haddock and Saccharin are in dueling cranes. Oh my God. Yeah, it was just like, yeah, it was weird because Tintin and Haddock feel defeated in Morocco when uh, Saccharin gets away. And then they're like, oh my God, we can track him and know where he's going. And then they get there before him. Yeah. And then it's just like, we're here now. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then we get to this dueling crane fight scene that's just like... I, I don't know, maybe in another movie, like at least the other stuff, even though it didn't work, still felt Indiana Jones-esque. We, we, remember we talked about this after we watched the movie? So he got the three scrolls, right? Mm-hmm. And they were like coordinates on the scrolls. Yeah. But he goes back to like England or whatever? Yeah. Okay, yeah, That's yeah. because in oh, the film, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah in the now. film, the coordinates lead to Marlon Spike yeah, Hall. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're, like, confused about, like, why has he come back here? Yeah. We also find out that Saccharin, because, like, I don't know, there's so many things, like, alluded to, like, the um, the opera singer. Yeah. They, they refer to her as, like, oh, our nightingale. Mm-hmm. Like, we have our secret weapon, the nightingale. And they're like, what is that? And then it's like, oh, it's an opera singer? Okay. <laughs> and similarly, he's like, I have to keep Haddock alive. I need him. Yeah. And then we find out it's because Saccharin is the descendant of Red Rackham, yeah. the pirate who dueled um, Francis Haddock. Yeah, Francis Haddock's uh, ancestor. And he's like, I needed him alive so he could remember who he is and what happened to my ancestor. Then I can kill him. Yeah. And we were like, what? Yeah. He only kept him alive <laughs> so he could remember and then he could kill him. Well, and there's also this bit about like only a true Haddock can decipher the clues for this treasure yeah and god (laughs) it is like look the the comics have their own host of like oh logical failings inaccuracies and and then things that just don't really make sense or like there's a plot line that doesn't really go anywhere yeah like the fake coins yeah fake coins (laughs) or just like a number of things like the the comics have their own host of issues uh but the film in terms of like taking these elements and combining them really makes for a very dense uh, plotted story that kind of is like, does this make sense? Like, I don't even know if this makes sense. Like, it's very confusing. It is hard to follow. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, things just kind of like lead to nowhere. Like why he kept Haddock alive. Just it, it, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. But they have this crane fight <laughs> and Saccharin is defeated 
and I guess arrested or whatever. So then they get the scrolls and they're like, okay, here are the coordinates that's going to lead us to the treasure. And I think this is a good time to talk about Red Rackham's treasure. Yeah. So in the comics, if you'll remember, where the Secret of the Unicorn ended was they had all three scrolls with coordinates on them. Yeah. And they were going to follow the coordinates. And this leads us into Red Rackham's treasure uh, in the comics, the next kind of accompanying volume to The Secret of the Unicorn. Yeah. And really, for the most part, the, the, the majority of this comic is isn't really incorporated into the film at all. No. Uh, they discover the coordinates lead out to sea and uh, they're like, that's where the ship sank. That's where the treasure is. Uh, they meet a new character who becomes a recurring character in the comics, uh, Professor Calculus. Yes, and I was not a fan of no. Professor Calculus. Honestly, like, I prefer the Thompsons. Oh, you yeah, know? I do, too. Their type of humor is better. The whole calculus humor is just that he's kind of deaf and he can't hear what anyone is saying. And so people say stuff to him and he just hears what he wants to hear and then says like nonsense back to them. Basically, it's literally every line, though, like he doesn't hear a single thing. He's constantly uh, saying the wrong thing in response or and like, yeah, if if it was like half of what it is. I think it would have been much more effective or funny, but it's just kind of like constant. It gets really old. It's like a really one note joke. Yeah, that, that keeps happening. I know. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy comes back in other comics. Like, <laughs> why? This is a shallow well of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so they take him and the Thompsons out to sea and they eventually find where the unicorn has sunk. And they're bringing up stuff from the unicorn. They don't really find any treasure. They find like a golden cross. Uh, Captain Haddock finds tons of uh, intact bottles of rum that he's very excited about. (laughs) Yeah. They find like a chest of old documents and that's basically it. Yeah. And it kind of like at one point they think it's on the island and then it's not on the island. And uh, it kind of ends up being like a total flop. Like they have no idea if the treasure even still exists where it is. And they end up going back home. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I kind of like in a way the intent of where this story goes with the twist, like the idea, cause if they had just like, Oh, here's the treasure and they dig it up. And like, that's like, that would have been like unsatisfying. Yeah. But what happens is they go back and they discover that these documents that they found reveal that, Marlin Spike Hall uh, is actually the ancestral home that belonged to Haddock's family. Yeah. And that it, it, it it's it's not legally his. I don't understand this at all, because in the comics, we were already at this place with the Bird Brothers antique people. Yeah. You know, we were all around this property and Captain Haddock was never like, oh, yeah, this is like the place that my family used to own. But then we lost it because we lost our fortune and we had to sell it, blah, blah, blah. Like never. And then in this one, they're like, oh, this was actually your ancestral home. And Haddock is like, oh, my God, my family estate. Like, I have to buy it back. And I'm like, how did you not know about this? Yeah, how did they lose it? Yeah. Because his his ancestor, Francis Haddock, after the ship sunk and everything, went back home yeah. and had children. Yeah. And 
it's, put the treasure there. Yeah, ended up hiding the treasure there. And it's like, what happened that they just lost the home and like no one remembers yeah. having had the home? Yeah. Yeah, that was the part that was like, I like the idea kind of of like, oh, the treasure's actually back where we started. Yeah, and having to go back. But this whole thing with like Marlin's Pike Hall is like, what? <laughs> what is any of it? What's happening? Yeah. Uh, but Professor Calculus graciously offers to buy this house the estate back for them because you know they're on their journey to find the treasure they got to test this submarine that he invented and that looks like a shark that looks like a shark (laughs) and because he sold the patent for money after testing it he's like yeah i have i guess just millions of dollars i can let you have uh i mean i kind of liked professor calculus not being a shit for once yeah earning you know his stay a little bit uh and yeah so they buy the the mansion back and they discover a secret room with a secret globe and they press a spot where the coordinates are on the globe on the globe and the globe opens and that's where the treasure is yeah <laughs> so that's how the comic ends yeah. and i kind of like haddock like gets this mansion and you yeah. know finds out about his family heritage and like it's kind of a nice wrap up for his character mhm once again the movie in an attempt to tie in the comics yeah to the film just does something that's so confusing yeah so let's uh let's backtrack let's back to the crane fight the crane fight <laughs> they get the scrolls yeah and they discover that uh saccharin had come back to uh europe because the coordinates actually pointed there not to the shipwreck but yeah. pointed back to europe and specifically Marlin's Pike Hall. Which is apparently the place that he owned. Yeah, Saccharin owned that house. <laughs> yeah. I guess. <laughs> is it, does it belong to Haddock in the film? No. No. That's just, yeah, I guess he just, Saccharin just owned that home. I guess. <laughs> and so, similarly, they like enter this room and they're like, oh my God, the, what is it? They find the globe and they're yeah. like, only a real... A captain, a true Haddock, a true seaman would look at that globe and know if there's anything out of place. And so Haddock is like, oh, what about this island that shouldn't be here? And he presses it and the globe opens up and there's treasure in there. Yeah. And you kind of find out that like, oh, that's only the treasure. It's not all of the treasure, but just some of the treasure we saw uh, the ancestor catch in his hat as the ship exploded, as the ship blew up. And you're like, okay, so they were only looking for this small amount of treasure that the ancestor had caught when the ship exploded. Yeah, in his hat. In his hat. (laughs) And you're like, okay, that's a little underwhelming. It's not like the huge amount of treasure. But wait, then they find another scroll. Another scroll with different coordinates to the actual shipwreck. Yeah. And they're like, guess this will be our next adventure. Sequel, baby. (laughs) And then that's where the film ends. And it's just like, Oh, my God. There's just. It's so many confusing things. We're like, what are they looking for? Where where are they going? Are they looking? They're looking for the big treasure. But then, oh, on the map, it's oh, but then it's a small treasure. But there's big treasure (laughs) somewhere else. You know, I will say I was a little underwhelmed with the comic as well. Yeah. For this, like they go out to sea. They have all these adventures at sea that are just totally pointless yeah and then they end up discovering 
the treasure on accident because like they are like oh this was actually the house that your family once owned like I didn't really love the explanation in the comics either and Red Rackham's treasure was definitely my least favorite of these three that I read yeah yeah not a lot happens it just feels totally irrelevant Professor Professor Calculus is draining. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, there's some funny gags. There's some funny moments. And like, I didn't hate it or anything. But yeah, it kind of felt the least um, rewarding, I yeah. suppose, by the end that's of it. That's a good explanation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where the film left off. And interestingly enough, I don't I'm guessing this is completely abandoned at this point. But they were talking about and I watched an interview with. Uh, Steven Spielberg and Peter Jackson, where uh, Spielberg basically said that Jackson would be directing the sequel to this film. Oh, wow. Based on um, Tintin and the Seven Crystal Balls. Okay. Or Golden Balls or whatever. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, they were openly like, yeah, we're going to do a sequel probably. Yeah. Uh, But this was 10 years ago, so I really highly doubt they're going to be doing a sequel again. Yeah, but that is interesting. And they were clearly yeah. trying to keep the door open for a sequel. Yeah, and they wanted to include Calculus in that sequel. And um, <laughs> and I mean, the movie was successful, I think, in terms of like making its money back. Yeah. Um, but I also know when Peter Jackson took on the Hobbit films, it was kind of unexpected. Yeah. Because Guillermo del Toro was supposed to do them. Mm-hmm. So maybe when Jackson took on that. Then the project was sort of Yeah, it was in place of the Tintin sequel. Yeah. So that's also a possibility. So there wasn't really a good time to talk about this before, but I really do want to talk about Hergé, um, the author of the Tintin stories. So, you know, he wrote them, he drew them, and he has a really interesting but complicated backstory. And I'm not going to like get into it definitely read up on him because he's just like a fascinating person but i mean we have to mention some of the more relevant bits of his backstory yeah essentially um when he started doing the tintin comic i mean all the tintin comics as far as i understand are were released serialized like as just strips in newspapers and then compiled later for books. Like Mm -hmm. even if he had a longer arc in mind for a book, it was all released kind of bit by bit. Yeah. Um, But this started early on for a Catholic, very right wing slash fascist um, newspaper that he was writing for and releasing Tintin for. Yeah. And so there was this, this newspaper and they actually created like a children's version of this newspaper that the Tintin comics started to appear in. And the editor of this newspaper was very Catholic, very right-wing, actually, like, idolized Mussolini. Mm, yeah. Because this was pre-World War II. And wanted Hergé to write and illustrate these comics as propaganda. Like, he was literally like, okay, this is propaganda for children. Yeah. And the first kind of volume of the Tintin stories is Tintin in the Land of the Soviets. And it's basically just anti-communist and i mean it's very inaccurate as to what was happening in soviet Mm -hmm. russia at this time and it was very like presenting a specific viewpoint that the people of a lot of the people in belgium had at the time yeah so really just like a complete agenda in mind uh similarly the follow-up volume was tintin goes to the congo yes and 
the Democratic Republic of Congo at this time was actually a colony of Belgium. So colonialist, like the Belgium people were like, oh, we own this country and these people. And it was very, very problematic. And the editor of the newspaper again was like, okay, I want your next Tintin story to be in Belgium to promote colonialism, basically. Yeah. So like these two early volumes of Tintin are honestly like, I think people kind of almost like don't count them. Yeah. I think like later when volumes of Tintin were released, they kind of start with Tintin goes to America. Yeah. And I do just want to say like the colonialist message of the, the Congo one is really like apparent and weird, but also like Hergé's cartoon depictions of oh, the yeah. people who lived in the Congo um, was just really racist and uncomfortable. Yeah. Like if you just look at the illustration in itself, like I I was reading about how they like redid some scenes and kind of like changed certain things up. And I'm like, you cannot save this. Like just the way that the African people are drawn, like you cannot save this. I know. Well, and unfortunately, I don't know if you saw this in Tintin and the Secret of the Unicorn, or maybe it's Red Rackham's Treasure. I can't remember. At one point, a bunch of people show up to Tintin's uh, apartment claiming to be Red Rackham's descendant. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And right in the corner, kind of hidden, but definitely there is a uh, black man in a suit. And Oh, just, I didn't even see that. Yeah, just, I mean, the typical, like, solid black skin with, like, red lips and, like, just the very racist depiction minstrel that, type yeah that like was in the congo comics and everything else so i'm like eh, he's even though he's not he may not be including that many black people in these comics but like he's still depicting them in the same way yeah yeah so it's just like not great and then there's this interesting period too because world war ii happens and belgium is actually invaded and taken over by nazi germany at this point yeah. And the Catholic fascist newspaper is shut down and Tintin ends up working for another newspaper that is controlled by the Nazis. Yeah. He went to France for a time and then went back to Belgium. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then ended up working in this newspaper run by Nazis. And actually, um, I think Crab at the Golden Claws... I don't know if all the ones we I think read, all of them. All of them, yeah. All the ones we read were originally released as these newspaper under the, the Nazi newspaper. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like there wasn't too much of an agenda, like a Nazi agenda put on Hergé when he wrote these. Like, no. he seemed like he was kind of free to write whatever he wanted, and it, he did. But he was just basically being like, yeah, I'll work for the Nazis. Yeah. And after World War II, uh, the newspaper was investigated. Yeah. And a lot of reporters were charged with being Nazi, like aiding the Nazis, basically. Yeah. Uh, they let Hergé go. Mm-hmm. They didn't end up charging Hergé. But a lot of the people who worked at that magazine or that newspaper were charged and prosecuted. Yeah, I read that some of them were killed. That's what I read, too. I didn't want to say that because I'm not 100% sure. That's what I read. Sentenced to death. Yeah. Yeah. And Hergé, they're like, eh, you're fine. You did comics. Which, I mean, 
we might never know what his level level of collaboration was with the Nazis, you know? Like, is it the type of situation where you're like, I'm in, I'm in a country where, like, this group is in power and I just have to make a living the best I can? Or was he literally like, well, they're not so bad. I kind of agree with them on some things. Like, I might as well, like, make money and do well in this organization. Yeah, it's it's a really gray area. And I don't know enough historically at that time, specifically in that area, like how culpable was he? How many options did he have? But you do have to like know and acknowledge the fact that like, you know, the Nazis were killing millions of people and Mm -hmm. everyone in Europe and everyone in a Nazi occupied country, you know, was aware of that. Whether or not they could do something about it is like to be debated, yeah. but like knew what was going on and what was happening and knew what they were going along with. Yeah. And so Erge kind of got out of that whole situation, like fairly unscathed. Like he went on to write a lot more volumes of Tintin yeah. uh, for other um, newspapers and slash uh, publication companies. And like, obviously became very famous for it and made a name for himself. And, you know, it, it, it is just a very, notable aspect of his past yeah that we definitely wanted to address and bring up yeah and i mean the racism and the propaganda of like the earlier stories you know doesn't really show up as much in the later volumes no and from what i understand because like i mean we have only read these three tintin volumes which for the most part are un they're they're mostly unproblematic yeah and they're adventure stories that are about finding treasure and and shit like that so we haven't read ones where it's like very much about another country Mm -hmm. as far as i understand his later ones where he does go to other countries like they are more they're more well researched they're more um thoughtful yeah more liberal in their politics and ideas um i can't once again say like how well, they hold up over time, but like, yeah. I think they're certainly uh, readable as opposed to like the Congo <laughs> yeah. or uh, the Soviet the, the, one. The Soviet one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just important to acknowledge this author's legacy and history and also just keep in mind the time when they were written and, you know, acknowledging that certain things are problematic now and probably no one should read some of those anymore, but also being like, But some of them are still good and they hold up and you do have to keep in mind the time that they were written. So it is somewhat complicated. Yeah. So all that being said. Yes. Shall we decide which is better without a doubt, always and forever? (laughs) uh, Book or movie? You know, I think I'm going to go with the comics on this one. Yeah. I enjoyed the movie. Honestly, I thought it was good. And it was entertaining and well-made. I just think the piecemeal Frankenstein plotting doesn't always work. Yeah. And I think some of the gags work better in the comic. Yeah. Especially like the Thompson and Thompson stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I just feel like it didn't quite capture maybe what the comics had. I totally agree. I'm going to go with the comics as well. They're they're enjoyable to read. I kind of like the vibe of them. It, it it makes me like watching the film. And, you know, this film was mostly met with positive reviews. Like, yeah. obviously, it did pretty well at the box office. Uh, 
I, I a few different videos online popped up for me about people saying it's kind of like an underappreciated film. Yeah. Uh, so obviously it has its fans. I think for me, it was just like, man, there's like clearly like a really good kernel of a movie here. Yeah. And if it wasn't done in this style, I think I would have really, if it was done more traditionally, live action is like an Indiana Jones style adventure. I think yeah. I really would have liked it a lot more. Or as in like an animated or, movie. Or, yeah, I was going to say as a straight animated film. And especially currently, there's been a lot of interesting kind of things done in animation that I think would suit Tintin very well, where it's kind of this blend of 2D and 3D animation. Yeah. The Netflix movie Klaus, I think, does it really well. There have been a few um, Charlie Brown Peanuts films, even like uh, the Sony animation films, uh, the Spider-Man one and the one we just watched, Mitchell's versus the Machines, incorporate a lot of interesting 2D and 3D elements together that kind of just broaden the possibilities for something like this Tintin franchise that I think like they really could have used effectively for an animated film. Mm-hmm. And so I think that also would have been a really cool and interesting route to see like today. Um, but just for what it ended up being, I was just very almost just distracted by the animation style and everything going on. Yeah. And that between between that and the plotting, I just really I think I prefer the comics. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, so let's see what our patron AJ has to say about the book and movie combo. So AJ says, uh, the Tintin comics are all the stages of life drawn into 24 albums by Hergé. Through the main character, we go from the bash-headed naivete of youth to the soul of adventure, distill it, and finally an uneasy resting tension between worldly acquiescence and spiritual will. The film scoops up somewhere between the beginning and middle of this arc, and it is all the better for it. Tintin Snowy is Indy's fedora, and there are some wonderful action set pieces that Spielberg manages to link the two series with. The motion capture of the characters can be summed up by the unicorn's freight and fate. Tintin looks great. The light bounces off his features well, and they really did a fantastic job of creating a realistic cartoon. Sans uncanny and unquestionably Sans Valley. Captain Haddock, however, looks like a withered old sponge that someone left out in the sun too long and stuck some raisins for eyes in for effect (laughs) and walked away only for that vision to come to life in a dream of theirs weeks later and make faces at them. Not a fan. It's also cool seeing Daniel Craig in a villainous role, and he performs it with such bravado that you have to wonder about him becoming a next Jen Alan Rickman in another lifetime, mm. if not for his ridiculously chiseled looks. <laughs> I like that take, AJ. I do too, especially the Daniel Craig thing, because like I know it's um motion capture and you're not seeing the real person, but like even hearing his voice, yeah, like it doesn't seem like Daniel Craig at all. Yeah. It is kind of fun to have him in that role. It is for sure. Mm-hmm. And I do like Andy Serkis's voice of Haddock a lot, like the kind of Scottish accent he did with that character. Yeah. Um But yeah, I can see Haddock also kind of being in the same sphere as the Thompsons, where he's kind of too cartoony, a little unsettling. Yeah, (laughs) kind kind of a potato person. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So let's do our lightning round. Yeah, let's do lightning. So first up for lightning round, the movie sort of has a storyline with Haddock drinking and then being like, maybe it's not good for me to drink this much. And Tintin seems to be trying to lead him down the path of not being a raging alcoholic all the time. Yeah. Um, And this storyline feels like it's happening. Like Haddock 
intentionally tries to not drink in certain scenes. Mm-hmm. And it feels like he's really getting his honor back with his family. But then at the end of the movie, when they find the treasure, they drink champagne. Yeah. And I'm like... I'm like, Tintin, don't let him do that. Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, because... And that's the problem is, like, Haddock's character primarily revolves around his, like, kind of drunken antics. Or just, like, his relationship with alcohol. And it's like, how can you really resolve that without, like, totally altering the character? Mm -hmm. Uneven. Very uneven. Yeah. Uh, there's a funny part in the comics when they go to the island in uh, Red Rackham's treasure trying to find the treasure because uh, it was uh, explained that uh, after the ship went down, his ancestors spent like four years on that island. Two years. Two year, OK, two years on that <laughs> island before he was rescued. And so they get on the island and they hear like this yelling in the distance or like this calling. And they're like, what what is that? Yeah. And they discover that. You know, because Haddock, the character in the comics, has this way of like swearing kind of or cursing. He's constantly saying uh, blistering barnacles, blistering barnacles, thundering thundering typhoons, typhoons, like that kind of thing. And all the parrots on the island (laughs) are saying all these like little quips or um, swears or whatever. And they discover that or they figure out that like his ancestors to say the exact same thing and the parrots for generations have just <laughs> kept repeating it. <laughs> Similarly, some monkeys steal a gun and almost shoot them, which is pretty Very funny. slapstick. <laughs> yeah. um, I also want to mention from the comics, there's a funny part where the Thompson and Thompson are on the ship and they have to like operate this like crank basically to get um, air so that Tintin and... Captain Haddock can dive to the wreckage of the ship. And so they're like, they call it pumping, which I don't love that <laughs> phrasing, but they're, they're having to do this over and over. And it's kind of funny because they get sick of it and they're like, we're going to go on vacation to our friend who works on a farm. And then it's just like a, a cut to them on this farm. And this farm guy has them like operating some kind of grain crank. (laughs) So like they cannot escape. (laughs) Yeah. Once again, it was just a really great visual gag that like, it was one panel after them saying we're going to go on vacation and them just operating that crank. Yeah. (laughs) There is another really funny visual gag in the comics where uh, Captain Haddock gets kidnapped and Tintin tries to give chase. And at first he finds a car that he just jumps into and then it's kind of like in a film where you would pull back and you realize that it's like a car with no back wheels that's being towed. Because <laughs> at first he's like, wait, why am I going in reverse? And he's yeah. getting towed away. <laughs> and then he tries getting in a taxi and he gets in at the same time as someone else. And they just get in an argument over <laughs> who has the taxi. Who, yeah, who rightfully has the taxi. And by the time he gets out, like the car's gone. Yeah. But it, I like these kind of like little just funny moments, these kind of like interludes in like the main plot that like I can see working well in like a newspaper format. Yeah. Like, okay, let's just have this like two. Like, I wonder how many panels they released each time, like whether it was one row or like two. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how they were like paired and like released week to week. Mm-hmm. But I can see how those would be more effective in like a newspaper. Yeah, it, it reads very funny. Yeah. So that's the end of our lightning round and it wraps up our episode. I want to say thank you again to AJ, our patron, for requesting this episode. Once again, an adaptation we might not have done before because, again, Ian and I have no familiarity with the Tintin series at all. So it was definitely something new for us. Yeah. Something different. So thank you again. Uh, If you want to become a patron, you can go to... uh 
patreon.com slash cover to credits where you can get access to all of our bonus episodes, our monthly schedules and updates from us, as as well as uh, giving us a recommendation uh, that we will then do. Yeah. And you can also find all of our social media on our website, CoverToCredits.com. You can listen to episodes there. And if you would like, you can support us on Patreon or you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts that helps other people find our podcast and really just gets us into, you know, more people's feeds, which is awesome. And thank you as always for listening to this episode and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.